Well, good morning. We are in uh, Luke 16. Last week, we're in the heels of a uh, rather strange parable that Jesus tells about a guy that Jesus commends for his shrewdness. He's an unrighteous man. He acts unrighteously. He takes his master's money, and he bilks him out of his own money. His master figures it out and fires him, but the man is liable for the money. He owes his master money. And so he figures out a way to bring some of the money back, to make friends with the debtors, and to make some amends with his boss. Jesus uses the example to say, watch and, and be, take careful notice. In fact, do like that unrighteous man did. He says in verse 9, chapter 16, verse 9, I say to you, make friends for yourself. And let me finish it. It's actually in verse 8. His master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own than the sons of light. And I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, you will receive, or they will receive you into eternal dwellings. And what he's saying is, is unrighteous wealth, by the way, is just money. It's earthly money. It's, it's your money, no matter how you, you came across it, it's money. It's not spent in heaven. There is no money in heaven. So it is, by virtue of its, where its place is, unrighteous. It's on the earth. And Jesus is saying, use that, that wealth on earth. Kind of like that unrighteous steward did. The unrighteous steward gave a break to everyone who owed his master. You owe me a, uh, a thousand, just pay 500. You owe a thousand, just pay 80. People were able to pay it. So he was shrewd in how he, how he got the money back, how he got some money back in return. And what he was doing was he was trying to make friends with these people so that after he's fired by his boss, the people that he's given a break to will welcome him at their table. And Jesus is saying that which is physical, what he did physically, you as God's people do spiritually. Use the wealth that we have for an eternal investment. Folks, there are people who have preceded you into heaven. They're there with Jesus now. You know some of them. They're your family. They're there. They're not there because you hope they're there. They're not there because they got baptized as an infant. The ones that are there are there because they placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and God saved them by His grace. Those are the ones that are there. That's what salvation is. People who say, I believe in God, the man upstairs, he does his thing, I do mine. They're not in heaven. Don't, don't be misled by, by hypocrites and people who, who honor some maker uh, w- way up there as they usually get to do that. Or a baseball player who hits a home run, you know, does this. Thank you, Lord, you know, hit that home run. What about the guy that just struck out? What does he do? Thank you, devil, for causing me to miss that third strike. No, that, that's not a Christian. A Christian is one who is placed, recognizes they're a sinner, Realizes they're hopeless and can't, they can never be, be exonerated from their sin, no matter what that sin was. They fall short of God's glory. They recognize that God is the only one, through His Son, Jesus Christ, who can atone for their sins. And they trust in Jesus. And they're saved. Those are the ones that are there. Now, those people who are there might be there because of you. We know that God is the Savior of all. We don't get people in, but God uses us Maybe he used the fact that you shared the gospel with him, and they're there. And so when you come through the, the gates of splendor in the, in the highest heavens where God dwells in unapproachable light, they will welcome you and say, thank you. I'm here because you shared the gospel. Or 
Maybe they're people you've never met. This is really what Jesus is talking about. People you've never met, and yet your money, your resources were used. You put them in the church coffer. You wrote your check. You had no idea where it was going. But you know that much of the money you spend goes to the ministries of this church, the media ministries of this church. It goes out to missionaries. And those missionaries, every one of those missionaries that are out there, your money helps bless. And everyone they speak to with the gospel of Jesus Christ is because of your money. You ever think about that? The way it works, you give your money, you have no idea, and yet it goes to help others, and those, help, those being helped are also spreading the gospel, and they're telling people about Jesus that you're not telling about Jesus, but they are through your money. That's not a rebuke, it's just the way it works. And you come through the gates of splendor, and they say that money you gave, when it hurts so bad for you to give, God used it to bring me into the kingdom. That's the way it's working. That's what Jesus is saying. Use the unrighteous wealth of this world to make friends for eternity. And I would go further. The money that you leave as an inheritance for your children, be careful. Don't leave them to children who are going to squander your money and just go buy bigger homes. Leave it to someone or something that will invest your money to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that once you're there, friends are coming in thanking you because your money went beyond your life. Not just your money, your ministry. What you wrote, what you said. Most of us who are Christians give Give kudos to people who, who told us what they did or who told us the, the gospel, who, who were a, a moral example to us. That's a great and wonderful and beautiful thing. And when they get there, we welcome them in. When we get there, they welcome us in. That's what God is saying. That's what Jesus says in that parable. Use your earthly resources, specifically your money in this context, to make eternal friends. God the angels, and the people who are affected by your giving. Which, by the way, your giving is called worship. Today it's called music. You call the guy that stands up here the worship leader. Don't, don't ever do that. That is not a, what I just did was not lead worship. And it's not because I'm not a trained musician. I, I led the singing. Whether or not you worshiped, you have to determine. You might have just sung the, sung the words. But did the worship stop when I stopped? When we stopped? What are we doing now? Well, now we just sit still and listen to a sermon. A boring one at that from a boring guy, right? This, my friends, is the worship. Sitting still and listening to God speak. I know I'm not God. I don't have that complex. This is His Word. Sitting still and letting His Word transform our lives, that's worship. You know what else is worship? Taking your money and putting it in the church offering box. That's worship because it's a sacrifice it's a sacrifice that's worship hey we're going to do worship now that's going to really technically in the bible that's let's parade around and go to the the money box now lest you are visiting this church for the first time and you're thinking this is just another money hungry guy i'm not i don't care if you give it's not a matter of what what you do that affects me it affects you remember we looked at philippians 4 17 last week where paul himself is receiving offerings from the Philippian church. And he says, I'm not trying to take it for my sake. He said, I want you to give it for your account, to profit your life. That's the section, that, that's what giving is. It's a worship of God, and the other side of that coin is it is a blessing to those who give. It's not that the church needs your gift, it's that you need, we need to give to the church. 
And so he's on the context of money. When he gets into verse 10, he says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in all, also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Well, you've got this, this uh, have you ever, some of you may have bought your, your child a car at some point. Um, maybe a new car. And uh, that new car went in your child's hands and, and they went out, whether they deserved it or not, they, they took the new car. And they, because they had no concept of what it was to care for a, a car, it's just a free gift, they go out and they, they drive it horribly. They don't clean it up. They skid the tires. The tires go bald and, and they don't change the oil. They don't know to change the oil. They just tear the thing up. You go look at the car a year later and you say, this was a gift. Look at how you've treated it. You treat the car right, it'll treat you right. And you might have taught your son or daughter a lesson. Look, this was a gift. And look at what you've done with it. If I can't trust you with this, what else can I not trust you with? The same is true. That's the principle here. He who is faithful with very little, and here in the context of money, if you're faithful with very little, you will also be faithful in much. So as people say today, they say, well, one day when I make a lot of money, I'll start giving a lot of money. Jesus is saying that's not how it works at all. If you can't be faithful with $10, you're not going to be faithful with 100 You're not going to be faithful with a million. Don't wait to get wealthy. I can't tell you how many people have told me through the years. Yeah, my wife and I, we really, we really want to start giving to the church, but we really need to be making a little bit more, and we really want to make a lot so we can give a lot. Those people I always go check, and I see, and they're giving nothing. Nothing. They're waiting for a certain point at which to give so that they can begin to give. Folks, if you're unfaithful with little, here's the principle from Jesus' own mouth. Faithful in little is faithful in much. If you are faithful with $10, if you're faithful with 100 or you can be faithful with a million. So you'll be unrighteous with it. If, that, if you were faithful in that car, maybe, you're, maybe your dad or mom, your family gave you a, an old jalopy. Is that, that's not even a word anymore, is it? It's an old, we call them a bomb, a bomb, a, a crummy car. How about that? Is crummy still a word to the millennials? It wasn't a really good car. How about that? And, and they gave you this car, and you're going, but Dad, it's a van. It's a, it's a pacer. It's a Ford Pinto. For crying out loud, you must really hate me, Dad. Because Ford Pinto was just like a ticking time bomb. That was a bomb, literally. Hit it from the back, it explodes. But maybe Mom and Dad were giving you this to see, are you going to be faithful with this crummy little pacer? Look up pacer, you kids. You see how bad a car that was. Wasn't even, I don't even remember the name. It was American Motors, I think. It's not even in business anymore. Look up the pacer and say, okay, Dad gave me a pacer, but I kept it clean. I did what I could with it. And I had a friend of mine that had this happen. It was 1983. 1983, his dad gave him a, a Buick Century. And it was gold. It was a tank. We called it the bomb. And, and he drove it. was very faithful with it. And on Christmas of 1984, Dad gave, or 1983, Dad gave him an RX-7 with everything on it. Remember the RX-7? Those of you from the 80s. What an incredible car. He was faithful with a little. He got much. I always think about that. Of course, I've known people who were not faithful with a little and still got much. And you're going, well, that blows this here. Not when we're talking about spiritual matters. There are many today who are waiting for God to bless them. Lord, where's your blessing? Where's your blessing? Please bless me. And I think God's question and response is, uh, where's the obedience? You're living life on your terms. You're doing what you want to do when you want to do it. And you're asking me to bless you? I don't think so. That's not the way it works. He who is unrighteous in a very little 
is unrighteous also and much. I, I tell people when I do marriage counseling and premarital counseling and in the middle of a difficult marriage counseling is that the wife, from the standpoint of the man, the wife is, is your responsibility, men. The way you treat that woman, that, that is a child of God made in his image. She is a delicate flower. My wife told me that. I, I put that in. But she is. She is a gift from God. Men, treat that woman as she belongs to God because she does. And when one day you have to account for her life, you're able to present her back as the gift God gave you. She's better for having been married to you, not the worse. So it works not just in the things that we own, but in our marriages. Certainly our children Therefore, verse 11, if you have not been faithful with the use of unrighteous wealth. Again, we're in, he's in the specific context of wealth, money. I told you, verse 9 is about just worldly money. It's not about getting it unrighteously, but just wealth in and of itself is unrighteous. If you have not been faithful with the use of, of worldly money, we could say, who will entrust true riches to you? Everything's a test with the money that you possess. God is using the money that you have. That he has given you, every bit of it. You might say, well, he hasn't given me much. But what he has given you is from him. And he's watching you to see how you do with it. Do you first and foremost acknowledge that it's from him? It might not be much, but I at least acknowledge that God gave me this. That I have the ability to work. That I have a job that my boss pays me. It's the acknowledgement of the truth. Do you at least acknowledge it? That God gave it. To acknowledge such is the first step. If you've not been faithful, I acknowledge it. God gave it. I'm going to give some back to tell God, I know that you acknowledge it. And for the purpose of blessing your church and to make friends in heaven, you can say that. Again, verse 11. If you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches? Those true riches. So to acknowledge that God gave it and then to invest it as God has advised us, well, how are you doing? There are some that will say, well, I don't give money because I have the talent to sing, to teach, to administrate, to serve. We leave the giving to others. Jesus doesn't make that distinction here. And there are many who attend churches and say, I do other things I don't need to give. Discuss that with Jesus in these passages. This is about our money because giving our money is the true sacrifice, is it not? It hurts. What? I got to write out a check? 10%, 20%, how much percent? Whatever you decide, percent. But whatever you decide is really kind of a, uh, an indicator of how thankful you are. Lord, I know you don't need my money. And you're right, God doesn't need your money. Doesn't need our money. We need to give our money. He's given us all. It's an acknowledgement. And those of us who give can attest to this fact, we have never gone without. Never. In fact, the blessings that come in far outweigh that which we've given. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, there's a test that God says, test me in this. Bring in the whole tithe and see if I don't bless your socks off. Now, that's a living translation, but that's uh, what he says. I, I dare you. I double dog dare you, God is saying, give and see if I don't bless you more than what you gave. And those of us who give know that principle is true. We've never gone without. 
And God is saying, be faithful with what you have so that God will entrust true riches to you. Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, the parable of the, the unrighteous steward, he, he was given authority over this man's estate. And he was not faithful with it. You and I have been given certain amounts of authority. As a man, I have authority over my home, my wife, my children, uh, my property. As a pastor, I have authority within the church. I have, uh, I'm going to answer for a whole lot. All of us will at some point. We're going to answer for a lot. Money here is on the, the table here. So if you've not been faithful, and, and it's not our money. Remember, God gave it to us. What will God say when we stand before him? Lance, what did you do with the wealth I gave you? I gave 10%, Lord. And I think God might say, okay, thank you for the 10%. It really helped me out. You know, I being an eternal God, omniscient, all-knowing, thank you for the 10% tip. He might follow up with, you know, when you died, the standard tip at, a, at Gringo's was 20%. But thank you for the 10%. Now, I think whatever percentage I give or you give, God's going to say, okay, thank you. But let's talk about the 90% you didn't. What would you do with that? What did you do with the percentage you didn't give? Well, Lord, I was under the impression that if I gave you 10%, I could do whatever I want to with this. Okay. So be it. So let's talk about that, God might say. Well, I spent it on me. Okay. So now let's look at your priorities. 90% on you, 10% on me. And you want in my kingdom? Folks, there's a reckoning to, to, to be done. We're going to stand before the holy and awesome God. What are you going to say? I didn't give anything, Lord, because I, I know you don't need anything. Yes, I know I don't need anything, young man. But you needed to give. And God might show us, you know, like the old, old uh, game show, pull open the curtain, Bill, and let's show him what he was going to win. Here's all the things I was waiting to bless you with that you said no to. What? 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 Well, I didn't know I was supposed to give. Well, you heard that preacher say so. It's in my word. My word has been around for like eternity. Don't be that person when God pulls back the, 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 the curtain of blessing that could have been yours because you decided to live for yourself. And so he says in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. And yet people try it all the time. People everywhere trying to serve God and wealth. And they think that they're, that they're doing. Yeah, I've, I give my money, I serve my, my, my money, and I serve God. I go to church on Sundays. I even give a little bit. I even got baptized. I serve God. Ask yourself, what does it really mean to serve God? I mean, do you have to do a bunch of stuff to serve him? What about your mindset? What are you doing right this minute? As I said earlier, you're sitting still. I'm the one talking. You're sitting here listening. You're fighting the person in front of you who's, who's taking your attention off or the little kid in front of you who's worming around and is about to need to get a drink. By the way, those of you who take your kids to get drinks in church, they're not thirsty. If this doesn't make anyone parched. You are a chump if you think your kids are thirsty. They're only asking because you did it the previous week and they're going to go out again. They're not thirsty. And if they are, I promise you, they will live. I mean, the air conditioning is on. They're fine. They had not been running. 
I just had to get that in. So people are trying to serve both God and wealth. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Yet Jesus says you cannot do one. I've tried to serve, this is theoretical, I haven't really. I've tried to serve two women. What what if that was my story? I love my wife, but I found another woman that I could love too, and I'm trying to serve them both. I think I'm doing a pretty good job. Private interview with one or both of those women, how would that go over for me? Especially my first wife. How's he doing? Well, he still loves me dearly, but he loves her too. Can you love two people? Sure. Can you love two people well? No. My wife is a selfish woman when it comes to my love. She demands only my love. Can you believe that? I mean, I I don't know what to do with her. I just have to love her? She demands it. And so do I. I will not ever allow attention to go elsewhere. I am a jealous husband and she is a jealous wife and it is perfectly justified as it is justified that our God is a jealous God who will not take an adulterous relationship with him whereby you serve him and someone else, something else. If you're trying to serve both God and money, you will fail. No one ever succeeds. You might be one of those people that Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 to 23 depicts where Jesus closes the eternal door and people are still outside the door, banging on the door going, Lord, 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 Lord. The, the repetition of the word means we, we know you, we love you. Lord, Lord, you know us. We did this and we did that. And Jesus says, uh, go away from me. I don't know you, you doers of unrighteousness. There are lots of people that think they know Christ that don't. They know who he is. They know what he did. The demons know who Jesus is and what he did. They know what he did on the cross. They know what he accomplished. That doesn't make them Christians. Any more so than people today who acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, acknowledge that he died on the cross, acknowledge that he was raised three days after, acknowledge that he's the Lord. That doesn't make one a Christian. What makes one a Christian is when they bow their knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ, having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be saved. Everyone else just knows something about Jesus. And those who know who Jesus is are the ones that have him number one in their life. I'll be honest with you folks. When I have to sing, I don't not enjoy it. I like to sing just like you. And I wish I was better. I really struggle with playing guitar well and singing. I want to be good. I have to practice to it. I strive to be good at it. I want to be faithful with what it is. But I have to struggle with, what, am I, what if I make a, a mess up? That embarrasses me. What if I'm off key? Coming in on His mercy is more, we have to come in on key? Doug, poor Doug failed at it one time. His mercy is, is more. And he, he stopped the music that day. You remember that? All right, I messed that up. Let's do it again. I did not want that to happen. Why? Because I was serving you. And my prayer before him was, God, let you, you and you alone are my audience. If I'm off key, so be it. I've practiced. I'm doing, I want to just sing to your glory. You are my audience. Right, God? And I think God's scratching his head going, I know you want it to be that, Lance, but you're still trying to perform for these people. Same is true with preaching. 
Lance, I know you want me to be your one audience, but you're still at some level trying to perform. People. I am. That, that's my confession. Perform? Me? Perform? Who is my master? Who am I devoted to? I preach like I do and preach God's word and will continue to do so. And if it gets me fired and killed, so be it. I, I do believe that. But I wonder if someone put a, came up here and put a gun to my head and said, preach it again. Would I? I think I would. This is a good place to die. This is where I want to die. Right here, but not necessarily in front of you. That might be a little traumatic. So I have to do it too. Who am I serving? Am I just serving God? Is he the only one I care about? What about you? With my giving? With my serving? Because if, if I'm not right, then I'm actually hating God. If I'm trying to serve two, God and someone or something else, you will hate one and love the other. To hate one and love the other. We, we saw this word in chapter 14, verse 26, where Jesus said, if you don't hate your father and mother, you can't be my disciple. And we saw there where the word hate doesn't always mean detest or loathe. It has a, a context throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, where it simply means to love to a lesser degree. To, to hate something is not so, so, ooh, I loathe this, a red face, I'm going to kill this. It's more of a, I love this, but in comparison to my love for Christ, I hate this. And that's what Jesus is saying. Same is true with your wealth. You say, well, how would I know if I'm loving one, hating the other? Well, just ask yourself, how much time do you give towards the making of money versus the time you give in prayer, the time you give at church, the time you give in serving? Prayer is not a time where you go, okay, this is the time of day when I pray. Or maybe you've got your watch set and it beeps three or four or five times a day and you go pray the... Prayer is, is you walking around wherever you go, always talking to God. It's you when your head hits the pillow at night going, Lord, we've been talking all day. I don't have anything new to say. Thank you for the day. All day, it's a relationship. You're in the shower. You're in the car. You're wherever. You're talking to yourself. You're that crazy person mumbling to himself. Who are you talking to? God. Go ahead and say it. God. I catch Cheryl talking to herself all the time. And she, no, I'm praying. Of course, that's what she would say. So selfish, always demanding my love. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, this is Jesus' context. The parable in verses 1 to 9, Jesus saying, use your wealth. And by the way, he's talking there, and look at 16.1. He was saying to the disciples. A disciple is a follower. So the followers of Christ, he's telling them this parable. He's telling them to be faithful in their, with their money, not with their spiritual gifts, with their money. The context switches over in verse, or the, I should say the crowd in the context, which is over to the Pharisees, because the Pharisees are part of this crowd, of the followers of Jesus. Verse 14, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, boom, if you're a lover of money and you've been listening to the first 13 verses of this, you are not comfortable. Same way you are if you come to church and you don't give money and you're never going to give your money, you're uncomfortable. You're probably not going to come back. This is the third Sunday in a row I've talked about it. As you're thinking, well, this is just another church that wants money. I, I'm an expositional preacher. I, I preach what comes up in the next paragraph there. And this is what Jesus is talking about. That's why we've strung together a couple of sermons back to back to back on giving. That's the only reason. I don't come to my, uh, sit in my 
chair at day in the day in my office and go, you know what, I think we need more money. I'm going to do a series of sermons on giving. I don't, I won't. You have my commitment to that. What I will do is go verse by verse and just pick up with the next one. That's why it comes to be here. So these Pharisees, they're lovers of money. They were listening to all these things. Note there, they were scoffing at Jesus. Scoffing. What has Jesus said for people to scoff? Well, for those of you who are out there going, Jesus is not talking about me. He just wants my service. He doesn't want my money. Those are for people who give money. Those are people that have money, not me. You're a scoffer too. You love money more than Christ because you don't want to give it. You don't want to part with it. You can't do it. I need it more than than God, and I'm not going to do it. That's where you are. You're one of these scoffers. But that's always someone who is an unbeliever. They will scoff at the things Jesus says, especially with regard to money. Pharisees, mind you, these are the religious people. These are the religious conservatives. These are men that walk around with their long robes, quoting Old Testament scripture, that everyone looks to and says, well, that's spiritual piety. Those guys. And that's usually the ones that that are going to be in the most trouble when it's all over. The ones that give an appearance of piety, yet inwardly are not with God at all. Go to any high church today. Maybe you're from the high church, the high Anglican church, or maybe even a high Baptist or Methodist church where there's lots of wealth, Lutheran church. You come into the beauty, uh, not what you see here, huge buildings, cathedral types, and all the, the, uh, the stained glass windows and the pipe organs and the, and the pastor dressed in a robe who's much more dignified than I, music that's much more dignified than ours, high church mentality. That's church. No, no, it ain't. I dare you to find the gospel in those churches. I double dog dare you to find the gospel in those churches. Went to a funeral of a father of a friend of mine in downtown Houston in one of the high Anglican churches. And while the pastor wore his stinking mask, going, you know, mask for a pastor to wear is like saying, you people scare me. But he had his mask on and he's up there talking. The gospel never went out. In fact, he said those who don't love Jesus are still going to be in the kingdom because they were sincerely wrong and God is going to bring them in. That was his, those are his words. I was so furious when I walked out. I wanted to give me that mask. But that wouldn't be Christian. There's a lot of things about me that aren't always Christian. But I kept it under wraps. These are the people that look, they look spiritual. But they're not They have no love of God. They would not preach God's word. That's who these Pharisees are. They're listening to these things and they are scoffing. The word means to laugh. Jesus saved his harshest criticism for people like this. I'm going to go over. I've got it saved, so it's tough to find. I'm going to read to you kind of what uh, um, some of the Pharisaical mindset was. The prophet Amos speaks to these folks. I'm in Amos 5.21, but just listen. Here's what God says. Mind you, they have all these festivals and they have their big music like churches do today. And God says this. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings, that means they're bringing their money, and your grain offerings, I will not accept them and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
In other words, they're having worship services. They gather in the name of God, and God is saying, I hate your services. I hate your offerings. I hate your songs. But we're worshiping. No, you're not. You're doing what you want to do, not what I demanded of you. That's the Pharisees, then and now. And no wonder they're scoffing at him. As they would come into Harvest Bible Church and scoff at everything I've said up to this point, from the gospel I shared at the outset to the words of Jesus about money up to this very point in verse 15. So Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. To justify ourselves in the sight of men is to try to make, to justify yourself is to, to try to save face. We do it all the time. I mean, I, I took a shower today, did my hair, got everything. This is best I can look. This is as good as it gets. I give that to you. Here it is. Best I can get. Eye candy, I know. <laughs> best I can give, and I will put on the best show I can from my hypocritical ways. I will step down from this pulpit, and I will be exhausted. Doing the music is a terrible stress on me. Preaching a sermon is also a great stress. I will come down. If you need me, I will give you whatever I have left. As long as I need to give it. I'm on dry at that point, but I will do it. And there have been times when I'm going, all I want to do is leave. Now, I confess that to you again as a sinful man. I don't always want to serve the way I serve. That smile on my face is sometimes phony. I have to tell you this because you might think that I'm always a good guy. But you do the same thing, don't you? How you doing? Great, great. Doing good. Thank you for asking. Fine. Inwardly, you're lying. You're not doing great. But you know it was just a greeting. But if I double ask it, hey, really, how are you doing? You might come clean. You might, oh, good. Yeah, I'm fine. No problem. Yeah, sure. Inwardly, you are dying. You're crying and you're hurting. But you're putting on that persona. You go to work. You had a terrible, terrible time getting to work on a Monday morning. You come through. How you doing? Doing fantastic. The louder you say it, the more you can might convince yourself. Your spouse asks you, you anything wrong? No, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm the man. I've got everything together. It's all good. Don't, no need to ask me. Don't need to check on me. That's my attitude, by the way. I'm good. Don't need anything. This is us who justify ourselves in the sight of men. So we're all guilty of it. The Pharisees in particular were trying to make themselves look like they were very religious people. And the people thought they hung the moon. They would never confess what I just confessed. They're just saying, we're good. And Jesus said, he knows the heart. You justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. He knows how wicked you are. You might have fooled people, Jesus is saying, but you don't fool me. Do you remember when Samuel, the prophet, went to Jesse's house? Because God told him, there's a king at Jesse's house. Go anoint him. Remember the first one of Jesse's sons walked out? And he was tall, dark, and handsome. And Samuel thought to himself, he must be the one. Because, you know, tall, dark, handsome guys, they must be the king. And Samuel was ready to anoint him, and God spoke to Samuel's heart. He goes, no, 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 no. You look at tall, dark, and handsome. I look at the heart. Remember that. I was standing next to my buddy Jared recently. I'm going to embarrass you. Standing next to Jared, who's tall, dark, handsome. He's like the man of man. And I'm in the foyer out there and standing there greeting people. It's a VBS. And my friend B. Hood walks by and she sees Jared. Who's, all eyes are going to go to Jared if I'm standing next to Jared. 
And she, oh, hi, Jerry, blah, blah, blah. She's, she's a very nice lady. And I went up and said, oh, hi, hi. Oh, I didn't see you. <laughs> I said, well, I wouldn't see me either if I'm standing next to that hunk. But here's the good news. God looks at the heart, brother. <laughs> People look at your good looks. It's right here. <laughs> what we say is great. God is looking inwardly. And God sees it. You Pharisees, you think you've come across good to all the men, and you have, but God knows how wicked you are. And then he says, for that which is esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Looks, height, money, success, the car they drive, the boat they have, the homes they own, the kitchen they redecorated, all the things we love. It's not necessarily that God doesn't like those at all, but when we exalt those things above a man or woman's heart, God detests what we exalt. He detests what we exalt. Ladies, if you're looking for a man, look to the heart of the man. I understand about attraction. You want to be attracted, but here's the news that all of us who are married knows. It doesn't matter how good-looking your spouse is, at some point, very early in your marriage, you have to learn to love and choose to love. Because at some point in your marriage, it might be six months, might be a year, might be two years, you will be going, what did I do with my life? And all that puppy love is gone. And you are at a crossroads where love is no longer what you feel, it's what you do. The verb, the verbal aspect of love, I am going to love this difficult woman or this difficult man. You're going to choose to love one way or the other, no matter how beautiful or good looking they are. So when you choose a spouse, look to the heart, the heart of that man or woman. That's what you're married to. The looks will go. But the Pharisees taught otherwise. What you esteem is detestable in God's sight. So in verse 16, Verses 16 to 18, people ask, as myself, I ask, where in the world does this belong? Remember, he's now talking to the Pharisees. So etch a sketch everything, put it in your mind, take a deep breath, and as we coast into the end of this sermon, make sure you get this, because this is the crux of it. Jesus says the law and the prophets. By the way, when, when the New Testament says the law and the prophets, it's saying the Old Testament, what you and I would call the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets, the law specifically is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law. In Hebrew, it's called the Torah. In Greek, it's called the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, the five books of Moses. That's the law. The prophets are going to be the prophets. And it includes the rest of the Old Testament, the men who spoke for God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. He's speaking of John the Baptist. So imagine that. From the beginning of Genesis up to the days of John the Baptist in the first century, that's what the Old Testament covered. John was the last prophet of the Old Testament, and he teetered on the very beginning of the New Testament. That's why Jesus called him the greatest prophet ever, the greatest man in Matthew's gospel. He was the end of all the prophets. He said everything the prophets before him said, and he announced, there's the Messiah. He's the forerunner to the Messiah. He saw Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1 29. So he is the end of the old and the beginning of the new. That's the greatness of John. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees who are scoffing at this money sermon, 
The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. They were proclaimed since that time. That is, since the days of John, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. John came on the scene and he said, the kingdom of God is upon you. And he pointed to Jesus, who is the kingdom of God. Believe in him, repent and believe the gospel. That's John from those days, the Old Testament up to John. John comes under the scene, points to Jesus as the Messiah. The kingdom of God has been preached. And everyone, he says, is forcing his way into it. By the way, uh, if you have a New American Standard Bible, if you have any version of the Bible, it's a strange uh, phrase there. Everyone is forcing his way into it. If you like to write in your Bible, as I wrote in mine, write, and all are urged insistently to come in. That, I think, is the best translation. So let's put it this way. Everyone, or the gospel of God has been preached, and everyone, or all, are urged insistently to come into the kingdom. And that's what Jesus has been doing. He's been urging them insistently to come into the kingdom, as John the Baptist did before he died. The kingdom of God has come upon the scene. John started preaching it. He preached everything that was preached before him, and he is urging everyone insistently to come into the kingdom. The Pharisees, however, were, if we just want to use the the more literal translation, forcing their way in. They're trying to force their way into it. That's everyone who says, I don't believe in God's grace. I don't believe that salvation is just by faith through Christ alone. I need to do my good works. I need to keep the law. I need to do this and do this and do that. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Remember, they're scoffing at Jesus. Jesus has been urging them as everyone else to come into the kingdom that's been preached since the days of John the Baptist, just a couple of years prior. Urging them to come in, but they're trying to force their way into it. You've seen the the videos of people, or maybe you've experienced it firsthand. You ask someone, if you died today, would God let you into his kingdom? And most people will say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Or if you just ask them, do you think you're a good person? Most people say, yeah, I'm I'm probably better than most. Okay. Is that why God should let you in? Well, yeah. I'm no mass murderer. God should let me in. I'm a pretty good guy, pretty good gal. That's people forcing their way in. Trying to anyway. That's people saying, we don't believe in grace. We don't believe in faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that we're pretty good people. Because the world has foisted that upon uh, the humanity. People are naturally good. I have a master's degree in counseling from Sam Houston State University. And the, the, the form of counseling that's taught at Sam Houston, at least it was when I got my degree in the mid-90s, is called um, Rogerian counseling from a guy named Carl Rogers, a humanistic counseling. Humanism is, is man can do anything he sets his mind to. And the way we were taught to counsel was never give people advice. Whatever they say, you just encourage them. Just affirm what they're thinking. How do you think that went with me? I didn't do well. One professor stopped the class one day, Dr. Watson, and said, Man, that's what he said, Man, this is not some evangelistic endeavor you're going out to do. This is counseling. Well, for me, that's exactly what it is, pal. That's exactly what I thought I was doing before I was a year and a half into this program. He was Church Christ telling me that this was not an evangelistic endeavor. Oh, yes, it is. Was, is, will be. 
forcing their way into it is just people who will not listen to the gospel. I'm not going to give my life to Jesus. So again, the context is the Pharisees have crept in and they're scoffing at what Jesus has said. And Jesus is saying, look guys, the word that you preach, the Old Testament, it's been around since the beginning of time. Moses to uh, Enoch to Noah to Isaiah to Jeremiah to Malachi to John the Baptist. That's the gospel that's been preached and I've been urging you into it and you want to force your way into it your own way. But he's telling him, you believe the Old Testament? You believe what they said? I'm the Messiah. You've rejected me. So Jesus says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. Now, there's no better passage from Jesus' mouth to show the verbal inspiration of the Bible. Verbal meaning in its words, word for word. That is, it is inspired by God. It is hence inerrant because God doesn't speak error. He's saying that Old Testament that you guys are teaching that comes up to John the Baptist, that's still valid. Now, that has a point here because of verse 18. That's still valid. Now, let me just take a quick pause, and I'll come back to that, just so you know. I had a guy come up last week. He said, you've got to give me some insight into why verse 18 is there. Why does Jesus all of a sudden say everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery? And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Where does that fit in? It fits in because the Pharisees were the hypocrites who were notorious for divorcing their wives. Let me tell you why. If you have your Bible, hold your place in Luke. Go over to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, a book written by Moses. God speaking it to him. And he speaks on divorce. God telling the Israelites when they go into the land of promise, the land of Canaan, modern Israel... This is what their law is to be. This is what governs them. Deuteronomy chapter 24, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if you want to start from the beginning. Moses says, when a man takes a wife, in chapter 24, verse 1, and marries her, and it happens that he finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. It's a very general word, by the way. Indecency does not mean that she committed adultery, that she has been unfaithful. If he has found some indecency in her and he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from her house and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. That's what he said. Okay, if you men are married to a woman and you find something indecent in her, give her a certificate of divorce so that she can go get remarried. So that it doesn't look like she was the guilty party. But it goes on, verse 3. Now, if the latter husband turns against her, and writes her certificate of divorces. So in other words, she marries. She's given a certificate of divorce by the first husband. She goes off and she marries another husband. If that husband lets her go, she can't go back to the first husband. Why? If the latter husband turns against her, that'd be the second husband, and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his first wife, then the former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. Since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land, which the Lord your God gives you as an, as an inheritance. So Deuteronomy 24 for the Pharisees had become, by their own interpretation, a way to divorce women that they were no longer interested in. That was their indecency. Their cases, I read them, where men would divorce their wives, Pharisees would divorce their wives because they didn't like the way they cooked. 
There are cases where uh, a Pharisee would see a prettier woman and found his wife, her non-prettiness to be an indecency and marry another one and do the same thing over and over. In other words, these Pharisees were married over and over and over again. The Apostle Paul himself was a Pharisee, may have had many wives up to the time of his conversion. Don't let your mind go too far there. That's just a surmising. So here's the point. Jesus is looking at these guys who are scoffing at him for teaching the truth, and he's saying, guys, that inerrant law that you teach, that you break every single time you divorce and remarry and commit adultery, convicts you. You got bigger problems than money, pals. You guys are going around here trying to justify yourselves in the sight of men. You are living in sinful, adulterous relationships, sending women away left and right at your behest, marrying them over and over and over, and you have the gall to stand here and judge me. That's why that's there. So people that scoff are going to be people who usually hear the truth, don't like the truth, and are living in their own sinful ways. In this case, this was what the Pharisees Love to do the most. I don't like you anymore. I'm sending you away. If all I have to do is write a certificate, I can say, well, the Bible says it's okay. The only reason God gave that provision was because he knew men were going to send their wives away. And that certificate that the woman took with her was a protection for her. Not permission for him, but protection for that poor woman who's being sent away having done nothing wrong. Maybe she's a bad cook. So again, Jesus is saying, as you scoff at me, the law and the prophets are valid, guys. They are inerrant. And you are breaking the law left and right with your marriages, and that's the only one he brings up here. What you are doing, back to the end of verse 15, is detestable in the sight of God. You want people to think it's okay because you can find a proof text in Deuteronomy 24. The whole thing is essentially saying you can't live in your sin And act like you're some pious believer. The greatest condemnations in all the Bible are for hypocrites like that. Far more for them than for atheists. And that's not an exaggeration. Atheists are at least the ones that say, I hate God, I don't believe in God. Which is interesting. They hate a God they don't even believe exists. But whatever. That's all you can say with an atheist is whatever. You have to to posit a God and then hate that God and tell everybody that God doesn't exist. Whatever. Um. They don't listen to to logic. They don't listen to truth. Uh, Believe me, I've tried. It doesn't mean you can't try. But at least they're hot or cold. The hypocrites are the ones that act one way and are another way and look like they're righteous and they right down the middle, everybody loves us. Look at how the people view us. And Jesus says, no, God knows your heart. That's your problem, not men. It's God. So here's what it comes down to in the context of giving. To give money is a sign of your understanding that God gave it to you. It's that you understand that what he gave to you, you are a manager of, based on the parable. That God will bring your spending habits to light and ask you, I gave this to you, why would you spend it like this? Same way a boss would if you're taking his money. What are you going to say? Lord, I used that money. I gave this portion of money to your church. I did everything I could with the rest of the money to live to your glory. 
live to your honor. Even the house I bought was to your honor. I want to be able to use it for, to bring people in if they needed shelter. The food I bought is, is for anybody who needs it. I've got a car here. I can, I can loan it out to a missionary or to someone in the church who has a need of it. I've got some extra cash in the bank. Happy to give it over to anyone who needs it. Just let me know. A lot of you do that. Hey, Lance, let me know if there's a need. I'd like to help. It's okay to spend it. Okay, I don't have anything here. I'm going to go buy me a new motorcycle. If you can afford the new motorcycle, go get you a new motorcycle. To the glory of God. I don't know how you buy a motorcycle to the glory of God. I bought one one time and said to the glory of God. Crank that thing up to glory of God. Glory of God all the way. I mean, I don't, I didn't let anybody drive it. I was at the gas station one day on my bike. My third Honda VTX 1300, nice bike. I had my black helmet on. You didn't know what I looked like. I could have had tattoos all over my face. And this guy comes up to me and he says, hey, I need your bike to go down to the Westheimer. My car's broken down. And I still had my helmet on and my mask. I said, what? He said, I need your bike. And he was very insistent. I said, you're telling me you want to use my bike right here to go down to Westheimer to get your car? Yes. And I thought, well, I'm a new biker, so maybe that's protocol. And I said, uh, no. My hand is moving towards the back where I have a weapon. I'm thinking, I'm about to be killed at the Bucky's station. And he just looked at me with these eyes. And he doesn't even, if I'd have taken my mask off and I'd had, you know, Mike Tyson tattoos or something, I wish I would have. That would have been a great day to have them. But I thought, is your bike to the glory of God? Yeah, but I ain't giving it to this guy. But I did. At that moment, I was going, if it's to the glory of God that I have this motorcycle that a man at our church bought for me, well, I have to loan it to him. No, no, I don't. No, I won't. I did escape with my life. Um, He was not too happy about it. And what's really odd is when I tried to crank it up, my battery was dead. And I'm thinking, I don't know if that's a sign. So anyway, all of that is to say, I don't know how you use your motorcycle to the glory of God, but you'll figure out a way. All things. So ask yourself once again, am I a steward, a good steward of what God has given me? Do I acknowledge God with it? Am I living my life for him or for me? That's really what everything comes down to here. Oh, I'm living my life. I look real good, but what am I on the inside? Who am I on the inside? As I told you earlier, I live to do this job, this task, to the glory of God. But a lot of times, I have to catch myself. I might be doing it for my own glory. How many downloads have there been? Well, how popular of a preacher have I become? That crosses my mind, but I don't need that. It doesn't matter. That's important to people. And I'm a people. No, I don't need to see that. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if anyone ever hears a sermon I preach, because it's God's word, and I mean nothing. Believe me, the fight is, is deep, it's harsh. I stress so hard to sing and come up here. Usually when I step up, I am calm and ready to preach. I have prayed after the music. I came in stressed from the music. I got to do it. My son dead. Dad, calm down. I know I'm going crazy. I said, I'm calm. What are you talking about? You told me this when I was a kid to calm down. Yeah, you're just waiting to just use my own advice on me. The point being is I move out of one to the next. Am I in the glory of God mode or am I just trying to get through a difficult passage? And believe me, folks, this is a difficult passage to preach for me. Where are you? Where are you with what God has given you? One day we will face the Lord God Almighty. The question might sound something like this. 
What did I give you? What did you do with it? What did I give you and what did you do with it? Will the door close? Will you be left banging on the door? On that narrow way? Because you did not strive to enter the narrow door? Because you did not follow Christ daily? Take up your cross daily? To follow and be a follower of Christ? While you announce from the back of that door, Lord, Lord, remember what I did. Look at the money I gave. Look at what I did in the church. Will the answer to you be, I don't know you. Depart from me, you doers of wickedness. Or will you already be inside, being welcomed by the friends you made to the giving of your unrighteous wealth? Let's pray. Lord, your word, your word is powerful. It makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes it might even make us wish we hadn't heard it because now we're accountable for it. May we find great joy in acknowledging that you give everything we have to the very breath we breathe, the air you made that we steal. It's your air, yet we breathe it. Some breathe it just to curse you. May we breathe it to praise you. May we use our money, our talents, and the gospel given to us to share. May it not be for our own glory. May it not be for our benefit, but for your glory. May we love you so much that that is all we want to do is live for your glory. May we look to the heart. May we know that you're looking in our hearts. We may fool others, but we will not fool you. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you. May we be ready when you return. And Lord, send your kingdom today. In Jesus' name. May the Lord God Almighty bless you, my friends. I want you to know I love you. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.